The New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. It can be found on page 2 of your bulletin. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, even on this day, another Sunday in February, as the earth turns and the world moves ahead, um, we need a moment to stop and we need a moment to be able to re-see, reimagine why we're here, why we're a church, what your purpose is for our lives, and more so, the mission of your son that touches our heart and changes us like nothing else. So would you open our eyes and do your work in our midst because you've said you would, and we'll thank you in advance for it. In the name of Christ, our captain, amen. Well, um, it's been decades since the popularity of mission statements, uh, right? Whether you have a personal mission statement or um, an organization that you're part of a mission statement, and they're a tool, right? They help us to clarify what the purpose is. They help us to align folks together so they can accomplish something together. They help us see our significance in what we're doing. But that all depends on how it's executed, right? In fact, a mission can be executed in such a way that it has the exact opposite effect. Basically, what it communicates is uh, get on the bus or be thrown off the bus or thrown under the bus. Uh, People are seen as discarded. People are run over and cast out. We see this in a global view right now with the invasion of the Ukraine. But it happens on a micro level all the time, right? Some of you may have stories where you were part of uh, businesses, nonprofits, where you felt like uh, you were basically collateral damage of the mission, the way the mission was executed. And of course, the church, 
is not immune from that. Uh, a podcast that's getting a lot of attention, I know some of you have listened to. I'm just in the beginning stages of listening to it. Part, part of the reason I just, I know the story well enough and I thought this is going to be painful to listen to. But uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hills Church. And here you have um, such an explicit example of what can happen and happens in any church where the culture, the mission in the culture of the church makes casualties of the members of the church and the leaders of the church. So the religious leaders in this passage, in Jesus' day, believed that they're laying burdens on the people of God of elevating the law against healing a man with a withered hand, even executing Jesus Their mission justified that behavior. But in contrast to that, we have um, Jesus, who the book of Isaiah, Jesus' Bible, identifies as the servant, capital S, who will be filled with the Spirit. And whereas in the world, in our experience in the culture, people are discarded and dismissed as worthless or weak or wayward, his mission is about valuing people. It's about appreciation, compassion, and liberation. And so I want us to take some time as we're thinking about Jesus's Bible and what we're looking at here is how did his book form the way he thought about what he did, his mission? And we should understand he was formed by his book. This is what the Bible teaches. When Jesus, the God-man, became man, he submitted to the normal ways of learning and growing and being shaped. And so, as we look at Jesus' Bible, we get insight into our mission together as a church. So... Let's do that. We'll start with the idea of the mi- a mission of appreciation. And what I mean by that is seeing the value of people in the mission. Now, every society has definitions of who is useful and who is not, right? Every city does. And an image that we're given here that Matthew pulls from the uh, prophet Isaiah is that of a reed. Now, a reed, you may know, was a tall plant with a hollow stem found all over the place in the Holy Land. And sometimes people would use it as a measuring tool, sometimes as a pen, sometimes uh, they put holes in it and make it into a flute. But, you know, if you had a broken or bruised reed, well, you would never take time to try to prepare it and use it again. Why? Because they're, they're by the millions all over the place. Only a fool would do that. Only a fool would spend time with a bruised reed. You'd toss it out and move on to the next one. And that's often how people are treated, right? In service to the mission. Now, the mission might be personal relationship. Meg and I were watching... Um, a show a couple weeks ago, and, and one of the characters 
who was in a romantic relationship said, well, I just love my partner because um, they help me fulfill who I am and my vision and my dream and who I want to be. And Meg just said, man, that's so self-centered, right? I mean, even the way we understand relationships today are, um, they're this dual project of self-fulfillment. Two people come together and say, you're going to help me reach self-fulfillment through what I want to do, what I've always dreamed of, and I'm going to help you. And if that doesn't happen, it's going to fall apart. And it does. Another way, another casualty of mission we see in value is treatment of the unborn. Uh, One of our elders, Aaron Jaggard, and he's given me permission to share this, uh, has dealt with a genetic bone condition his entire life. And uh, when he was single, before he was married to Debbie, he was having um, uh, some time with one of the doctors on his team, a geneticist, who um, the subject of children came up. And Aaron shared how he was excited about that, if God should have him get married, which he did, and had two beautiful children. Praise God. But um, the geneticist said, well, do you really want to risk Uh, bringing children with this condition into the world. And Aaron thought and responded and said, well, I've always thought I've had a blessed life. And the assumption is that uh, someone with my condition uh, wouldn't have a life worth living. Right? This is one of the ways that our culture understands value. Or we can go another place. We can go to the, the topic of um, the way we value people of other cultures and race or the sin of racial oppression. Uh, some years ago, someone in the church gave me uh, Trevor Noah's autobiography. I don't know if any of you have read it. He's really a great writer. And uh, it was, I really learned a lot. But he's talking about it. It's an autobiography. And he says that, You know, education in South Africa before apartheid, basically he said if you found a black educated person or leader like Nelson Mandela or Stephen Biko, it was because they were educated by European missionaries. But when apartheid started, Bantu schools were created. And in those schools, uh, people were educated about agriculture or metrics But things like science, history, civics were intentionally not taught. Because the idea was, well, these people don't have value. We just need them to to count potatoes and and, uh, chop wood and pave roads. And of course, our own country has a legacy of generations where education, right, was underfunded. People were deprived. And the sad part about it is people are deprived of the education they should have had for generations. Then they're blamed for it. Right? And so, wherever we look, we find that there is this um, estimation of value that the world has. And at the root, it's this idea that if someone is bruised, They're not used goods. They're thrown out goods. If someone is bruised, well, they're really not usable. They can't function. And you compare that with Jesus, who spent his time with people that were undervalued, right? His ministry, 
children in that culture, women in that culture, those that were disabled, those that were suffering. We get a glimpse of it here with a man with a withered hand. This religious man's healing was not worth, in the eyes of the religious leaders, was not worth risking offending the law. And Jesus basically says, you know, you all have more value for a sheep, right? You all have more value for an animal. Why? Because it fits into your mission, your personal mission, than you do for this man. And what this passage is teaching us about Jesus' mission as it connects him to the book of Isaiah is that Jesus came expressly for bruised reeds. Expressly for bruised reeds. Those that are broken and bruised by the fall, as the song lyric goes, by their own sin or the sin of others, which is all of us. Every one of us in this room is bruised and broken. Isaiah would say that the Messiah, the servant, came to what? To be bruised and crushed for the iniquities of sinners. You see, ultimately, what we're being told here is that Jesus is the bruised reed. He is the bruised reed that undergoes the greatest bruising in his crucifixion, bruised by God for our sin and failing. Why? So that he might carry our bruising. But it's only, it's only when we come to see and accept our bruising and brokenness that we will see him as the bruised reed. It's only then. For those they continue to live in pride as if they're not a bruised reed. Ignore it. They will never see him. They could never see him. And so, the mission of Jesus comes to those and appreciates them in a way that they haven't been before. The second thing we see is the mission of compassion. Now, the image we're given here is of a faintly burning wick or a smoldering wick. And I wonder if we might summarize that by those that can't keep up. Those that can't keep up, the weak. Um, One of uh, Elton John and Bernie Toppin's most famous songs uh, was written out of inspiration uh, to Marilyn Monroe, right? The great supermodel actress, singer who overdosed. And in that song, some of you I'm sure are familiar with, in the chorus it says, it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind, never knowing who to cling to when the rain came in. And the reason, I I think that's an important thing to mention, not only because I just love Elton John, love his music, because in our town, um, Weakness is often covered up by beauty and togetherness and achievement and accomplishment, right? I've heard it actually said of this church for years. People seem so together, and and it's just hard to be weak, right? And the truth is, I always say, if you get to know people, you'll see that that's not the truth. But we we live in a place where um, it's very hard to be 
a smoldering candle. And we're reminded of it when Jesus says that he came and won't snuff out the one who's weak. Um, you know, um, to be weak, right, to be vulnerable, we, we find ourselves in this position where we really wonder, um, will someone come and find me in this position and will they snuff me out? You know, will my boss? Will this person I'm dating? Will the culture itself of Washington, if they see that, I'm gone. As we're fainting. And again, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for their lack of compassion. And one of the ways that I think we are challenged in our day and age uh, is... Can we slow down, listen, and help one another and those in our circles and fears when we can't keep up? This pandemic, I think, has been a great test of that, right? I, I, you know, when I heard, uh, we had a, a forum where one of our counselors, Jackie, spoke, and when she said, yeah, the data shows that <clears throat> during this pandemic, most people can't concentrate for more than 15 minutes. I was like, thank you. I can be weak. I can admit that. <clears throat> and many times, the test of this is uh, when your mission is interrupted. So Meg and I this week uh, voluntarily brought trouble into our own lives. We adopt. Uh, we got a new puppy. We got a puppy. Okay. And I'm kidding. It's we. I wanted to do what we've been driving it, but it's an eight and a half week Bernadoodle puppy. And, you know, it's been a while since we've had a puppy or human puppies, you know, kids. And uh, one of the things that you're reminded of is like the mission interrupt us, right? Like, you know, your mission to sleep, your mission to um, walk through the floor without tripping, over the puppy in your feet, your, your mission to not get bitten, your mission to go to the bathroom, your mission to, you know, I, I think today, as I was sort of doing some editing on this, Meg was at the store, it, it must have been 16 times that I went, flip, open the computer, you know, mission interrupt us. Well, um, maybe someone in your life you can think of, they do that for you. And the test is, it's really no better test of compassion. Is our mission compassion? Now, you know, the business world has gotten hip to this some years ago, where it's talked about how managers that manage with compassion, it's ultimately better for the company. And I'm, I'm glad that it actually is better for the company, because I don't think people would do it otherwise, right? Glad the bottom line, but, you know, active commitment of setting the paths for success for people. Supporting their growth, clearing the way of obstacles, redefining process to improve work-life productivity, all those things to help people keep up. So I would ask you, 
to think, who is one person that I know needs my help to keep up? Because again, this is what Jesus did. I was, I was thinking way back to uh, when I lived in Nashville. And it's, a, it's such a simple thing, but it was poignant. It was powerful for me. Uh, living in Nashville and a group of my guy friends said, let's go to Colorado and hike, uh, I think it was Mount Sneffels. Does anybody know if that's, okay, I'm just shaking head. And the name makes it all the worse for me when I get into it because basically, um, you know, I had never really backpacked like with something on my back, right? I had never really seriously hiked. We were hiking up to this alpine lake and I also was not in really good shape. And so we take off and it's 20 minutes into it and I am, I can't do it. I have to stop. After, it was a series of two hours of me doing 15 minutes at a time. I was just like so ashamed, except for my friend Phil. He saw what was happening the first 15 minutes and he just stuck back with me. And you know, for the first hours, I had, I'm so embarrassed, you know, he was just like, no, it's fine, let's just keep going. Keep going, keep going. He met me. The mission was get to the top. We got there slower. But we got to the top. I was embarrassed that I couldn't climb Mount Sneffels. It just sounded like, a, you know, sniffles or whatever. And here's the challenge. As soon as you are willing to go to that place and acknowledge your weakness, someone's going to come to your side, name the accuser, and make you feel completely ashamed for admitting And this is where Jesus, the high priest, rushes in and reminds us because he has subjected himself to be tempted in every single way and brought in every single weakness. We have a high priest who sympathizes. I don't know what the the weakness you feel. He sympathizes with you. The deeper you go into your weakness, the deeper you go into his heart for you. And then he opens up a throne of grace so that you can enter and become strong in your weakness. As he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is made perfect in weakness. A mission of compassion. But lastly... A mission of what we would call maybe liberation. Uh, This passage ends with a quote talking about how the Messiah will bring the good news of the kingdom to the furthest reaches of the nations, as Mike mentioned earlier. That's always been a part of the Christian gospel. Jesus gave that commission. That my kingdom should be brought to the nations. And those of us in the West need to remember It didn't start here, (laughs) right? I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this this week. I was walking, wait a second. It came here. Then, of course, it's going back and forth in every which way because the Spirit of God loves to bring the good news of the kingdom. And so Isaiah is saying that those from the furthest coastlands... The Gentile mission that would happen under the Apostle while people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, the servant and the Messiah, that is his mission. Where is 
human beings will make their mission those that are their affinity group. He was not like that. And yet, he was actually doing some repair because when God commissioned Israel, when he collected his people of God, he meant for them to be not only messengers of the mission, but models. The people would look at their society and see the righteousness and the justice of it. You heard that word repeated both in Isaiah and our passage, and they would be attracted to the light of God. But they failed. Even their own society, Gentiles would look in and and basically go, what? I want to be like that? In the book of of Romans, Paul would say, the the Gentiles, the people that aren't believers, they actually, you've made it harder for them. To know you. So what is it about this servant? And, and, and we're not picking on Israel here because Israel, as the first people of God, every people of God have had the same trouble. And there's two different ways that the servant upholds the mission that it's critical that we uphold the mission. Listen to the Isaiah passage again. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, that's where I get this liberation idea, those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To quote a book title from Harvey Kahn, the late missiologist at Westminster Seminary, our call is to preach grace and do justice. Preach grace and do justice. This is what the Messiah was doing. So, Churches, and these have typically been liberal churches, churches that tend to just focus on justice and don't preach grace become enslaved to what we would call moralism. Right? Churches that downplay the idea that people need uh, the atonement of the Son of God for the forgiveness of their sins because of their failures to be just, their failures to be good. You've heard me mention before, you know, there's a whole sort of subculture of hating the haters. Right? We've got to, like, step back and go, where's that put us? And so when we just focus on trying to, uh, what, what the Bible theologians would call the cultural mandate of renewing the culture, without first starting with this idea of the good news that God has given his son for sinners, repent and come to him so you can really be saved by grace, not halfway grace, not sort of gotten into the college, but you have to earn your degree, not this idea of, you know, he'll take away your S, but you need to earn your A's, not that sort of stuff, but full-on, complete, unconditional, embraced grace To be saved by works, but not your own works, the works of the Son of God for you. God in his compassion coming to you and I because we can't, even on our best day, live the life of love that we know we should live. Right? Even the standards we hold other people to, God could just take us up to heaven and judge us based on that. Forget the Bible. But if we we don't preach that message, we become moralist in an endless project of failure. Preaching grace. But second of all, a church that only focuses on preaching grace and not deeds, they become enslaved to individualism. 
which is to say, well, you know, my experience in life hasn't been that unjust, so therefore it, the world must not be that unjust. I mean, it happens every now and then, but it's, it's not like people say individualism. This idea that sort of I've just got my experience also, of course, results in sort of a, a faith of assent. I believe, you know, because I believe somehow I'm justified alone without... This is the book of James. You can take time and listen to it. So it fails in its, not its cultural mandate, but its evangelist. Rather, it fails not in its evangelistic mandate by sharing the gospel and saying, Jesus dies for your sin, but it fails in the cultural mandate. Because, right, what is, this is what the Old Testament gives us so much of, and this is what Jesus meant to show, and this is what you and I are so longing for. I don't know about you, know, what we feel this week. Ukraine is one example of endless examples of the anger, righteous anger. Righteous anger over injustice. We long for a world of shalom. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Without that transformation, what, where, I don't want to go. A bunch of people's sins are forgiven that are nasty. Right? We long for more than to have our sins forgiven. We long to live in a world that God has put in our breast. The world that Jesus gave a glimpse of at his ministry in those three years. And so, this is what Jesus does in his mission, and it's our mission. If we can stay on track by preaching grace and doing justice, and under that we can include service and mercy and lots of things. Yeah, obviously, that phrase doesn't encapsulate everything, but you get the point. Word and deed. If we're faithful on both of those, then the Gentiles, that means the wayward, really have a reason to hope. You have a reason to hope. Because a gospel without the good news of forgiven sins ain't no reason to hope. And a gospel without demonstration of justice ain't no reason to hope. So Jesus' Bible gives us a life mission that um, aligns us on appreciation, compassion, and liberation. And let me pray that God will give us grace to walk in that way. We are humbled, O oh Father, by your, the way you value us, Jesus. I think about, I, I want to pray for um, anybody in this room that is struggling on this point particularly. And maybe it's through their anxiety. I think about your words that say um, on do not worry. Do you not know that you are more valued by the Father? I pray that you would seal that to our hearts. I pray for those that feel like they can't keep up with Washington, D.C., or they can't keep up during this pandemic, or they just can't keep up, and they feel weak and they feel ashamed. I pray that you would come close, Jesus. And as they open their vulnerability, they would just be hugged by your big heart. And then lastly, Lord, I pray for each of us. Each of us has a tendency we, to, to fall off the horse either way, to want to keep quiet about the gospel and just do service, 
or to just simply do theology and not enter into the hard places of the world. And I pray you would help us to be a church. You've, You've been faithful to us. Continue that, we pray.